Cycling Weekly Podcast. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Lizzie Stanard and I hope that the background noise from the cafe that we were sat in wasn't too annoying. Obviously when you're sat in a public space like a cafe there's always going to be a little bit of noise in the background, a little bit of talking, some banging, a bit of music but I hope it didn't take away from the conversation and from what Lizzie had to say because I think she had a lot of really great things to say and I really enjoyed chatting to her. So I hope you guys did manage to enjoy that without the background noise being too distracting. And I especially hope that because today I have another in-person recording from another cafe, this time in Andorra, where I met with Brody Chapman, who is based up there. I'm sure you're all familiar with Brody. She has obviously been in the World Tour now for a couple of years. She moved from FDJ to Trek this year and promptly went and won the national title in January. Unfortunately, it's been a bit of an up and down season for her with a crash at Wevelgum that put her out for a while as well as then getting COVID. We talked all about that. We also talked about how she got into the sport, which is quite an interesting story. She went from racing downhill to road, which is quite the transition. Uh, what it was like coming from Australia over to Europe, I feel like that's quite an overdone topic when it comes to riders from places like Australia, New Zealand, and America. But I think it can't be stressed enough how... Uh, how much more of a challenge it can be for people from those places. I think people from Europe take for granted the ease with which they can travel and access races and all of those things. So yeah, we touched a little bit about that. We also talked about some of the issues facing the women's side of the sport. Brody's often quite vocal about these things, including how race organisers shouldn't be afraid to put on challenging and longer races for women, especially stage races. Um, so we chatted about that. We also talked about what Brody has learnt from some of her teammates at Little Trek, and not just the experienced ones, but also the younger riders. And we also talked about next season and what she's hoping to achieve, including a focus on time trialing. So yeah, once again, I hope the sound is all right. Please excuse any background noise that. I hope it doesn't affect your enjoyment of this podcast. And before I press play on this interview, just a quick note that next week there will not be another interview podcast. And the podcast may go out a few days later because I'm heading up to Belgium next weekend to meet with none other than Rachel and Tilda, where we will be going to a cyclocross race which is very exciting. It's kind of for fun, but I will be taking my microphone. And I think, to be honest, it would be illegal for the three of us to meet up and not record some sort of podcast. What it will be, what you guys will get remains to be seen. Who even knows? I'm sure it'll be chaotic. Hopefully it'll be fun. But yeah, that's what's going to drop next on this feed. So look out for that and enjoy this chat with Brody Chapman. 
Welcome to the Women's Cycling Weekly Podcast, Brody Chapman. Thank you. Good to be here. We're sitting in a cafe just having a casual chat, so it's good. Yeah. Whereabouts are we right now? What's going on? We're in Andorra, and we're down in Andorra La Vella, so it's quite quite temperate, but a bit colder up top where I've been, uh, where I live. <laughs> yeah, so you're up here. This is where you're based. Um, and obviously, it's where a lot of cyclists are based, a lot of training around here like a lot of climbing what's it like for you up here Uh, I really enjoy it I mean I like climbing a lot I like being in the mountains Um, I mix it up between riding my mountain bike and my road bike and then uh, yeah occasionally pop back down to Spain for some warmer weather and some uh, socializing but yeah it's it's really good it's I I expect it's usually um, colder up here this time of year in November but it seems to be quite warm which is ideal for cyclists not ideal for all the people waiting for the winter season but uh, we like it <laughs> I'm not sure if I would describe it as warm necessarily <laughs> I'm pretty cold but yeah I think there's probably maybe more snow at this time of year usually I don't know yeah I, I don't know either but I, I think normally yes from what I understand it's been quite um quite a warm November but, you know, I'm not a weather person. Sounds like we're talking about the weather, which we are. But it's funny because people are like, oh, talking about the weather is so boring. But I think with cycling or any kind of sports, it's actually a, a legitimate conversation. Like, what's the wind doing today? What direction is going? When's it going to start raining? What time should I go out? How sunny is it? <laughs> yeah, it's like picking when to train or like pre-race charts about like what the weather's going to be like, what the wind direction is. So we can be forgiven for talking about the weather today, but perhaps we won't spend the whole podcast doing that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, as we mentioned, it's kind of mid, early, mid-November right now. Um, I imagine you've had your off-season, you're back to training already. Uh, what have you been up to the last couple of months? Yeah, so <clears throat> I had a pretty, my year started well. I'll take you back to answer your question. Um, and then I had a pretty bad bout of COVID and I kind of never really recovered well since then. I've had I've had a all right year, like I've been able to do my job, but I've uh, had a lot of just respiratory infections and stuff that um, have plagued the year a little bit and everything else is fine. It just seems to be that my immune system took a huge hit with COVID and uh, training at a high level and racing, travelling doesn't help you recover. So I took a pretty extended off-season, which I think is probably a good thing for me because I think a lot of cyclists really stress out about the off-season. They don't want to stop exercising they don't want to see their body change they don't want to see their fitness drop and I I also I feel that way as well but I know it's really necessary so I pretty much stopped after the Simac tour and then I yeah I was sick again so I took a week um, just to recover from that and then I went to Malta actually went on a holiday which was nice I think the Europeans are quite good at European riders are quite good at stopping and going on a holiday whereas I think a lot of Australians we have this feeling that we need to keep riding and keep training and keep fit all the time um I didn't do anything like running or hiking or activity I literally did nothing which was nice bit of snorkeling in Malta um then I went to America for our trek end of year camp which is a we go to visit the trek headquarters which is quite cool because they take on a lot of our um feedback so since we're like a like owned by trek it's really cool because all the engineers in every department want to hear all our feedback and I actually really enjoy that about going to Trek. I don't know if anyone else does, but I really like that they want to hear our experience and then adapt the 
equipment based on that and the same with SRAM in Chicago. And then in between that we just partied heaps which was really fun and that's a great way to build back a bit of fitness on the dance floor, um, if you can call it that. Um, yeah, and then I came back and I just started off real slow training again and yeah, it, it was a long time off but I think it's a good idea and I definitely see the benefits. I think also speaking to some like male riders, for example, who they really know how to take the off-season and seem pretty happy to take four weeks off the bike at times. And so I was like, okay, it's fine. I don't need to go, don't need to go running, don't need to, you know, maintain this false sense of fitness. <laughs> Why? So you mentioned, like, you think there's a difference between how the Europeans approach it and how Aussies approach it. Why do you think that is? What do you think that's because of? I definitely feel like... In Australia, you don't really have this, like, season per se. It's just, like, you, you can ride and train all year round, and people do. Like, there is racing and bunch rides and everything all year. Maybe it's just a bit colder at times. Whereas in Europe, you really have significant seasons. Like, I mean, a lot of Northern Europeans can't ride <laughs> for a lot of the year due to the weather. Um, but I think it's also just like maybe more ingrained in if you've been a cyclist for a long time to really have the season then have the off season then you know you're building through November, December, January but with the Australians obviously we have our national championships starting on the 4th of January this year um, and although you know that it's not the time to peak it's always a bit of pressure to be able to perform and be a professional rider returning back home um, so that's always like a a bit of a stress I would say I have spent a few seasons in Europe not racing the Australian summer during COVID and I really enjoyed the long slow build um, but I also really enjoy the Australian racing and I am Australian so I yeah probably I got to get around it you know <laughs> yeah I mean obviously as defending Aussie champ going into the next nationals do you have you felt that pressure or to kind of get go there and perform again or are, are you going over there for nationals yeah I'm going back to nationals I think it's the right thing to do to return as the defending champion unless there's a pandemic or something that stands in your way um I will I will have a similar build to last year like actually last year I wasn't in like crazy flying form I was just in a, a good competitive form and um I had a really good team around me so that definitely made the racing easier <laughs> when you have a couple of teammates <laughs> Um, but yeah, I'll try and aim more for the time trial this year, I think. Like, it would be awesome to defend the title, but, you know, the race is different every year. It's a, I, th I believe it's the last year that we're having it in Ballarat. Um, so I'm really curious to know where it'll be next... No, not next year, 2025. I actually have no idea. But I, It's been on the exact same course. The exact same course. Year, yeah. I mean, Ballarat put on a really, really good event. Um, I do think it's time for a change, however... I don't know if it'll be more climby or more sprinty, but I think just a different course will be good. And to go back to um, your team camp with Trek, um, you talked about how like you, you can give feedback on the materials and stuff, but materials, wow, that was like such a Belgian thing. The equipment. Um, and you also went partying and all of this, but you went there, you were there for the cross race too, right? And there was this like, you all dressed up, I saw... What was that about? Yeah, so at the Trek headquarters in Waterloo, they have a full-on cyclocross track there and mountain bike trails and stuff. So they have one of the cyclocross, I think I think it's a World Cup round. Uh, yeah. And they also have a thing called the Legends Race a few day, uh, the day before, which just is like a bunch of people dressing up in Halloween kind of costumes and 
taking beer hand ups, which seems to be synonymous with cyclocross at an amateur level. <laughs> um, unfortunately, it was so incredibly muddy, and like we were just riding like mountain bikes, um, that it was actually quite hard to complete an entire lap. But luckily, we stopped at the secret bar halfway through and just drank beers. Um, and then watch the pros taken on the next day, which was super impressive. Like, cyclocross is like one of those things that I feel like I would really enjoy, but I, I probably don't need to take on another discipline. <laughs> um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's just incredible to watch the grit and the power of the cyclocross, just how fast they go, because it's so, it's so different to road cycling. They just start full gas, and you can, it's a really good spectator sport because you can see everything. And it's great heckling, and yeah, I really like it. It was good to watch. Yeah, I mean, obviously, because you've got a mountain bike background as well, so not tempted to to race cross one day. Just use those skills. I'm totally tempted. Like honestly, I like emailed Lucinda Brand. I was like, can I can I maybe buy one of your ex team bikes? And then I was like, when could I, you know? If I'm going back to Australia, I definitely can't do any cyclocross racing here. Um, then I would have to go running in the off season, which is fine. I could, I could, I could do that. Um, I don't know. One day I'd really like to do it. Like I know Catalonia has a pretty good cross cross scene, and it'd be cool to go to Belgium. Yeah, I'd, I would love to do it. But I think I, I like the vibe where everyone just like yells and screams and supports. And I think you know road cycling has that a little bit too. But I mean, you know how it is. Mountain biking is just a really different vibe at the races. And cyclocross is a bit more like that as well. Um, a bit less serious. Yeah, more chill. Better spectator sport in a way as well because you see them multiple times. Yeah, no, I get that. Um, well, speaking of all that, like, let's go really like back a little bit and talk about your entry into sport. I know we have like done previous interviews where you've talked about this before, but just in case no one, just in case people aren't familiar with how you got into the sport and your background in it, just give us a little brief. Brief overview. <laughs> no worries. Yeah, it wasn't a very typical entry to the sport. Um, I did enter the professional peloton when I was 26, so basically an old lady by today's standards. Um, or not, because 41 is apparently the new... <laughs> it's true. It's, it's very diverse, in fact. <laughs> um, I just was a really passionate bike rider. I mean, I started working in a bike shop when I was 17, and I just wanted to do everything. I did like a lot of local downhill racing um I really enjoyed it I wasn't that good at it I did a few national rounds but you know I was never never topping the podium or anything um did some enduro did some four cross but yeah I just enjoyed any sort of bike riding so and it was more like the people that I was around so once I found a crew to ride road bikes with and got into that I did some racing and I was good at it so you know therefore I liked it <laughs> and I just wanted to improve I was just doggedly like I need to compete against better people than me so I actually moved from Queensland to Victoria just because I knew there was a high level of racing and yeah from there I kind of ducked in and out of road cycling I did find it quite hard to switch from like downhill which was at a you know at a club level it's fully just you get drunk the night before you heckle on the side of the road like the road the track (laughs) gosh um to then go to road cycling where you had like a training plan and like tapering and the night before the race people would like not socialize which I found really strange <laughs> like aren't we all going to the pub it's like no we don't we don't talk to the other teams the enemy <laughs> and I was like oh gosh um so I think I found that yeah I didn't really fully commit to being a road cyclist because I just wanted to enjoy 
what I was doing, but I, I loved racing crits. So Australia has a really good like club level criterium scene. So every state will have weeknight crits, um, weekend crits, and that was just like my bread and butter. Like I loved it. Um, yeah, I raced a bit of enduro still, which I also really enjoyed. But it, yeah, basically I won a UCI race in Australia when I was racing for the national team. Um, I had a lot of form at the right time <laughs> and that got me onto an American team um, and they were like, yep, we're going to race in Europe. Are you keen? And I was like, 100%. I'll give it a go, this professional cycling thing. If I don't like it, then I'll stop. Like, if I don't enjoy it, if I don't adapt well to it. But I knew that I just wanted to go to the highest level and even if that meant DNFing and coming 100th in races, which for sure I did, it was just so cool to see how hard it could be. Um, and I knew that the, the sport is in Europe. So on the American team, we had really good opportunities to race in America, which was a perfect like transition for me. Um, it was a higher level than Australia, but definitely not as high as the level in Europe. Plus, I got to race in Europe a bit. And I decided to base myself here from the get-go. Um, and yeah, I've always just kind of aimed to be consistent, to be a good teammate and to progress, you know, not too rapidly, even though like maybe my time is somewhat limited because I started late. But I want to be able to go to a team and go to a race and know that I can perform my duty, <laughs> not be like a fish out of water. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously now, because that was back in, what would it be like, 2018, yeah. So I feel like you got into the sport at a time when it was like on the cusp of like massive changes on the women's side. And now obviously, what is that? Six years, five years? So you're pretty experienced now um, and you've seen like quite a lot of like growth within the sport too. What's, how's that kind of been like, because I really think like from that point, like there wasn't the women's world tour or it was, there was women's world tour level, but the calendar and the teams, like there's been a lot of like changes in the depth and the like kind of how the sport is constructed. Oh my God, my brain is not working no, today. Yeah, I, mean. I mean, it's, it's not actually clear cut. It's not, it's quite, the change has been exponential and it's been non-predictable in a way like when I started out, it was kind of just like, wow, I can't believe I get a free bike and someone's giving me like $8,000 a year to race and give me the opportunity. Like I was so happy. I got free kit, got support, you know, had someone give me bins. So I actually really appreciated it. Um, and yeah, it has changed so much and it's, it's changing so quickly and it's both a positive it's, it's overtly a positive thing, but it's also just making it hard for teams and people to catch up. And for sure, I mean, myself plus others who've been in the sport for a lot longer probably have that feeling of like, man, I've been doing this the whole time and getting paid peanuts. And now you have people entering the sport so young, getting paid heaps. But that's what we, that's what those people worked for, right? Like what you've advocated for. It should be that new riders, young riders coming to the sport are getting paid their worth um, and it's a viable career. I mean, it's a high-risk career. It's a super high-risk career. It's it's fickle in both sponsorship and also your health and also injuries, so you should be compensated as such. Um, but, yeah, it is crazy, crazy to see. Like, I definitely have to think I'm just grateful that I could enter the sport at that time. I mean, who knows if I was 26 years old now, 
trying to enter the world tour, it could be really difficult. You know, winning a race in Australia isn't held in super high regard, I think. Um, yeah, depending on the team. But, yeah, it's, it's cool to see, see where it's going, for sure. Have you felt like a, an, a measured kind of... Like, have you been able to feel the difference in the level of the peloton from when you started to now? And how have you adapted to that? Oh, for sure. I think that there's just multiple organised teams. Um, and I would have to say, compare, comparing it to the men's racing, purely because men's racing has been professionalised for a lot longer... What makes the sport exciting is multiple whole teams full of strong riders working together to win in a certain way. And when I entered the sport, Bull Stallman's was overwhelmingly dominant. I mean, it's kind of gone full circle where SD Works is also overwhelmingly dominant right now. Um, but I think so many other World Tour teams are now resourced enough um, with you know team coaches, with having nutritionists, with paying the girls enough, with materials that you can have a really exciting sport so just just seeing the organization of the teams is um and applying those tactics is what's made it a lot harder as well and on a personal level have you had to like step up how you train or change anything around that or have you just kind of like grown with it I've had to step up how I recover (laughs) um yeah I think like when I started yeah I didn't have a coach at all when I started and then I got a coach and then you know I kind of just still did what I wanted (laughs) and now I've got about like 10 people privy to my training peaks knowing what I'm doing and where my form's at and how I'm training and so that and what you know what races my strengths were shown and whatnot so yeah I think I just have to manage yourself a bit better and you I mean for what I'm doing I can't really compare myself directly to others I need to like work with my coach within my own limits and it's really hard like I fully compare myself to people all the time like oh they did this much hours they did this much training they're looking like this this time of year and I just have to like quieten that voice and be like you need to improve you know based on your level and what you can improve like I would love to be Damie Vollering tomorrow but I'm not going to be (laughs) and so yeah I think that the all the professionalism of it and that just the um like we were saying, the resourcing, like the team doctor will help me out if I have any injury or illness. The sports dietitian will help me with my fueling. The, you know, strength coach, like whereas when I started um, far out, if I had an injury, like you're on your own, sorry. If you're sick, your team's like, oh, we need you to race still. But that's just not the case anymore um, at, the, at my level anyways. Yeah. And when it comes to the training and having to kind of like like you said, take your recovery seriously and things like that. How do you manage that against, obviously, when you started out, it was all about keeping it fun and obviously that's a big part of how, of your enjoyment and, like, your engagement with the sport. Do you still make a conscious effort to do that? Oh, for me, for sure, because I get quite... I get a bit stressed when I have to stick to, like, a real specific schedule and, like, I'm I'm fine to do that, but I don't... I don't um, thrive off like numbers and TSS and like ticking the green box like I thrive off enjoying what I'm doing and even training when I'm training it's because I know it's going to make me better at racing so at the end of the day I want to be the best at racing I can be not the best at training but going to racing prepared well is what motivates me in training if that makes sense not because I need to 
have my week look a certain way. Um, but I still try to keep it fun. My coach is on board with that. Like, I do ride my mountain bike a lot just for training. Like, I'm not doing anything crazy. Go to the pump track every now and then. Go on some fun rides, find new roads. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is also my job. And so even if I want to go for a long ride with my friends and I have a recovery day, let's say, I need to respect that recovery day because I know that at the end of the day, my coach and the team are the exercise physiologists and they know the science behind it and they have my best interest in heart, at heart, in heart, at heart, at heart, at the end of the day. Um, and they also have the team's interests. So, like... There was a time this year where I really wanted to race the Mountain Bike Marathon World Championships for Australia and I had the opportunity to do so. Um, and I think that like my road fitness and previous mountain bike experience translates quite well across to that. Plus, I really enjoy it. Um, but I had been battling with sickness and my form was on and off because of that. And at the end of the day, the team just said, uh, no, you're not doing it anymore. And then initially I was so angry and I felt so robbed and I was just like, you don't own me. And then I realised actually they actually do own me. <laughs> they allow me to live my life and pay my wage. And so, yeah, okay, that's something I had to swallow. But at the end of the day they made the right decision and I had to remember that it was about my health, about my performance and my main role is to perform on the road bike for the team. So, yeah, there is a compromise for sure. And also the longer you're in the sport, I think initially you can come in, especially when you're new and just, you know, go, 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 go. You can maintain a high level of form all year. But if you want to have a sustainable career, and that's what I want, I had to really sit down and talk to myself at one point and be like, do you want to have a consistent, enjoyable longest possible career and I was like yes I don't just want to come in burn myself out become jaded with it and leave because unfortunately a lot of people do um and so I was like okay what what's that going to take and what does that look like being consistent and enjoying the actual lifestyle of being a professional it's no one else has pressure on me no none of my family's like you need to perform or you know it's it's purely I got myself here and so I want to have a good career and enjoy my career and look back on it and be like, man, that was a good time. Not like, oh, I'm glad that's over. Or, man, cycling had me, you know, depressed or stressed or, you know, physically broken. I, I want to enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's... I, <laughs> no, it's, I, I get where you're coming from. Like, I think there's a lot of people that... I think the mental side of it is something that people don't talk about enough like kind of the pressure that athletes put on themselves but the external pressure and how to deal with that and a lot of the time or not many people seem to work with anybody that like helps with that or have that support really but do you have that from the team or do you like seek that out or is it just your own kind of like is the onus on you well luckily we do have a sports like full-time sports psychologist with the team she's really good um, so at any time I want to reach out to her, I can, and she also checks in with all of us throughout the year. And so that's I really appreciated that on Trek having that resource. I've always worked with psychologists, um, both just for like life and also for sport, um, because I actually believe a lot of people think they might need a sports psychologist, but actually they just need a life psychologist. Once you're like base level, baseline well-being is in place, then you can focus on the one percenters in sport, like choking under pressure or 
how you're getting through a race. But if your, you know, home life is stressful, maybe you need to figure out how do you can cope with that first. Um, but also a lot of it has been myself. Like, again, coming to the sport late, I think, was an advantage um, because, I, you know, I was older. I have had some life experience. I have had my ups and downs, and I've learned that it doesn't have to be all or nothing, for example. But, yeah, there was a point at the end of TIBCO, I think I didn't really take a break for two years, and I was, like, um, I'd been at altitude a lot racing in America. I was quite lean. We weren't actually – I was pretty – uninformed about fueling in races for example I was getting sick a lot and I was I was winning races but I knew it wasn't sustainable and I I do a lot of my own research as in like trying to listen to experts in the field so I try to listen to podcasts or read articles from like registered sports dietitians or physiologists um, psychologists because there's a lot of like anecdotal information out there but I I really I'm glad that I did that because I can see that, yeah, if I want a sustainable career, I need to be healthy, I need to be happy, I need to accept the ups and downs. And I, I do see a lot of young riders just going full gas and then wondering why like, they come crashing down and then they try to come back to the level in the same way that they used to. And you can't do that. Like, you do have to evolve in your career you do have to change, like, not only with your age, but just with your, like, your life situation. Maybe at one point I would have been happy living with five other riders in a share house, which I fully did when I was younger, but now I'm like, there's no way <laughs> I'd want to do that. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of it's just my own, own self-reflection, but I'm absolutely happy to reach out to experts when I need to, and I pretty much always do. Like, that's why they're there. <laughs> and obviously when it comes to kind of dealing with the ups and downs of sport this year seems to have been quite a big one for that for you you've obviously had quite a lot of illness and injuries and stuff like this um yeah how's that been and how did you kind of ride it out yeah it's been difficult it's been interesting I think with COVID it's such a normal thing everyone's experienced almost now and so you have to be like you kind of accept it it's out of your control. I definitely didn't give myself enough time afterwards, which is hindsight. Um, the first time I ever had COVID, I was actually fine and after three days, so it's a bit different. Um, but then I had an abig injury, which was super frustrating. It meant the whole spring was out because I broke my sacrum in a crash in Ghent. Um, but again, I think with injury, you kind of have a bit more like clarity around it you're like okay this bone is broken bones take six weeks to heal it was a non-displaced fracture so I could eventually get on the rollers and do my training and you just I don't know I think you accept it as a part of your job when it came to the kind of constant respiratory infections that were just coming after pretty much any hard race or any hard training um, you really start to question your own like is this my fault what am I not doing right? Like, am I, but I know that it, like I might, I wasn't overtraining, I wasn't under eating. And that was quite hard to kind of have this middle range, you know, non-diagnosed specific thing. It was just a result of it seemingly a constantly suppressed immune system. Um, and the only thing you can do is rest and hold back. So the, the heart, the, the part I found the hardest was 
not being able to like push the boundaries because normally you're always like all right every year I want to improve what can I do more of and like you said the peloton's level is increasing so you're like I need to keep up but I was kind of I, I just had to do the kind of bare minimum a lot of the time and that was mentally quite hard because you feel like everyone else around you in the time that you're sitting on the couch uh, is just like improving dramatically <laughs> and that you're going to be left behind. So I, towards the end of the season, I was getting quite stressed because even in races, I could, I could do my job, but I knew it was really hard. Like I could still do it, but it was just so hard compared to what I expected out of myself that I was getting, you know, I'd be quite upset after races. I think I tried to not let it affect my teammates too much, but they knew that I was frustrated with myself and like all athletes put pressure on themselves and you do need people around you to say, hey, it's no problem. Like we know where you're at, we know what you're capable of. Um, So just trying to like allow myself to be, you know, I'm not going to listen to anyone who says, don't be sad, don't be upset, don't be angry. Well, it's like, well, I am because my whole life is based around my physical performance and if I can't do that, then it's frustrating. And I'm going to be upset. I'm going to question it. And I'm going to have moments of depression or, you know, sadness about it. Um, but I think I'm okay with that now. Whereas maybe in the past I would have been like, you shouldn't feel this way. Or I would have been fully just in a hole, like, fuck my life. But I'm just like, okay, I need to accept that my mental state isn't tip top. And my physical state is what it is. And... I will come out of it. It's not going to last forever. Um, But that was definitely the hardest part, just like being okay with not being okay, (laughs) if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. And yeah, I guess the thing is, is like with, that's like the nature of of Mm. professional sport as well. Like a lot of people go through periods where Mm. it's not going very well. But when it is your whole life, like it's quite hard to kind of put it into perspective or or just like yeah like you say of course you're going to be frustrated and angry and upset so what what actually helps me personally a lot is knowing that others have gone through a similar struggle and so when I speak to other athletes who are like oh man I had a whole year where I was just sick all the time and you know then I see them excelling the year after or you know any given time afterwards I'm like oh okay like if they can do it I can do it or other people who've had worse injuries and come back or maybe multiple bad seasons, it actually really helps me. So I I like to either listen to interviews with other athletes or I just talk to them myself or coaches who say, oh, yeah, no, we had a guy on the team with a similar thing and it makes me feel like, you know, it's more of a common experience. Yeah, I don't know why that makes me feel better, but it does. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, everybody wants to know that they're not alone in an experience especially if it's a bad one um so what about um obviously you've got some really experienced teammates on track in terms of like I don't know I'm thinking Lizzie Dagnan, Lisa Longo-Borghini have you talked to them about these things because for sure they've had similar kind of down periods in their in their career yeah a huge reason I moved to track was because I was able to ride with um, other really experienced riders in the peloton. So namely, like you said, Lizzie, um, Amanda Spratt, Elisa, um, Ellen, which I haven't raced her this year, and Lucinda Brand. Um, even the young riders I learn a lot from because they've been, you know, maybe professional athletes longer than I have. 
Um, yeah, I mean, Elisa Longaborghini had a really good start to the year. Then she had a big bout of COVID and then some unfortunate crashes. And yeah, you know, her level to me is still amazing. But for what she expects out of herself, probably she was disappointed a lot of the time. So just seeing how she deals with that. Um, yeah, has helped me a lot. Speaking to riders like Lizzie, like she always has the right thing to say. Racing with Lizzie has been a really, really good experience. Like she's relaxed, but she's also a good leader. She's a great road captain. She can perform super well on the bike, um, whether she's going for a result herself or she's being a teammate. And yeah, so I really appreciate that. And also um, I have some really good chats with Lucinda Brand because she had multiple injuries and illnesses as well and she has you know two seasons to deal with and she's also been racing since the dawn of time um so Lucinda for example like there was one race I was I was really upset after the first stage of the Simac tour I was just battling to be I was just pack fill I hate being pack fill I hate just dangling at the back of the peloton and and being useless which is kind of what was happening because I was just struggling so much with the intensity and so I was, I was really upset after the race and I was trying not to um, show anyone, but I was crying. And then Lucinda came to my room like afterwards that night and she just spoke to me about it all and sat down and just, you know, gave me a pep talk, which was really, really nice and super helpful. And like, I didn't ask her for it, but she just knew. And um, like, we have a really good team vibe on Trek, I have to say, like, Everyone supports each other professionally and on a personal level. So, yeah, I really love hearing those experiences from the other girls, for sure. Yeah, that's so... I knew Lucinda was a legend. That's... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Um, And, yeah, obviously, like, this season hasn't gone the way you might have wanted it to. Um, But has there been anything you've kind of, like, taken away as kind of an improvement you've made or like some growth going into next season that you can sort of like what are you aiming for now in the future I guess let's look let's forget the past like let's not dwell on the next year yeah, that's, true. that's a good point so actually not dwelling on this year is my main goal <laughs> because when I had my end of year meeting with Ina and our new director um, she was just like okay I know this year's been really hard but you need to not keep thinking about it move on to the next year and that was a really good to hear from her just clarity because it's so easy to constantly be like what if next year is just as bad or like what happens when I get sick again am I going to go into a mental spiral and be like no um next so this year I mean I had a obviously good national championships it's a really hard race to win and it's a really nice one to have as, as a result in your career um I also felt like when I had to do the job for the team most of the time I really could do it and that's my main goal like if I am riding for somebody else um, and I can be there and do the thing at the right time then I feel really satisfied so even if I I think in Scandinavia you know I did this huge huge turn on the front going into the circuits and then I was completely done and I did three circuits finished so far down but I was so satisfied because I know I'd given 110% of what I had for the good of the team goal and that's what I really get satisfaction out of I also improved my time trial this year so I was third at nationals it was the first time I did the time trial nationals and then I was fourth at the tour of swiss which, I mean, I was kind of the best of the rest because I had Demi, Marlon and Lisa Longo taking the podium for the time trial. So I was so stoked. Like, it was really satisfying to... I really like time trialling because um, 
it's just kind of like you just get to go as fast as you can and you know only you are the limit there and so I really want to keep improving that and Trek's been super supportive with um helping me on that quest <laughs> um with really good equipment um yeah testing and just you know even backing me and saying yeah we think that you've got the engine for this and we'll support you to keep trying obviously time trialing is a little bit like formula one where it's just like if you can afford better equipment and testing you might be better and yeah i'm not quite at that level where the little tiny one percenters are being applied but i've with my coach um definitely working on the training required and the team's doing what they can with the resources they've got to help me so that's been a huge improvement this year I've really enjoyed and yeah I've just enjoyed being on track I've, I've learned heaps like even managing my own health you know you do learn you also learn that like I don't know it, everyone everyone will tell you that resting is good for you and you're like yeah 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 but until you do it and come back and they're like wow I'm better or like I'm actually fine yeah it's it's you have to like live it to learn it I think yeah but I can imagine it's so hard as well to do like everyone knows in theory that it's like the right thing to do but when you're sat at home on the sofa and you're watching other people race and or you just seeing other people train especially if you live somewhere where there's loads of other cyclists and you're just like seeing other people out on their bikes like I can understand why it's like a really difficult thing to do but like you say it's obviously the right thing well, we wouldn't be. I think all professional athletes have been kind of obsessed with their craft at some point to the point where it's it's been the priority above everything else. So you'll say no to sitting on the couch or resting or going to a social event in order to ride your bike, um, especially as an amateur. Like, for me, it just became my everything. Um, but then, yeah, when you are a professional, you have a whole season to manage. And that's why you have a coach and you, know, you have a team because... I feel like coaches don't need to motivate athletes to train more. Like, that's what personal trainers are for. You know, every, every athlete's motivated to improve and train and race and get the best out of themselves. Otherwise, we wouldn't be at this level. So, actually, what you need is coaches and people around you to kind of give you permission to rest and tell you, hey, I know it's going to be okay. I know how physiology works. I know how psychology works. So, it's okay to rest. You'll come good. And my coach is really good at, like, reassuring me I would say that like at one point in my life when I was before I was professional I was pretty like addicted to exercise so I would exercise for the sake of exercise I didn't like the feeling of being still I didn't like the feeling of um, becoming unfit and even when I was if I had injury I would be so stressed and unfortunately I think there's still people in the professional peloton who are addicted to exercise and they often the ones who you see um maybe never reach their actual full potential because they don't rest enough or they become injured or sick so frequently and are looking for a reason outside of themselves as to why. It's like, well, maybe because you don't slow down enough. Um, but I, again, I look to those athletes who've had long, sustainable, consistent careers and I'm like, okay, what are they doing right every year? And that's resting and properly resting. And like, I still need, I mean, I'm an energetic person in general. Like, what I would consider rest, maybe others wouldn't, but I, that's why people around me like Ina or, you know, my coach will say, walking around town isn't resting or, like, going to the pump track isn't a rest day. And, it, and I'm not doing that because I feel the need to exercise. I just do it because I have, I have the energy, but then my training will suffer from it. <laughs> yeah, I guess there's a trade-off as well, though, because like obviously if doing those things is what's good for you kind of mentally as well, like going to the pump track and having fun like puts you in a good mental place to carry on training after your rest day or whatever then 
it's like a trade-off or a balance that you have to keep maybe yeah that's that's definitely true and you also have to respect that different years bring different things so last year I felt really good at the end of the season I could kind of continue to do fun riding and like I'm definitely not saying people that do exercise activities in the off season are doing it wrong like I think if you can manage yourself then that's fine but like some years maybe you need four or five weeks off some years maybe you can deal with two it depends how your year's been and I have to remember that this year's my body's been under a lot of stress um, from there yeah, from COVID and all the consequences after that and so I, I have to accept that because you know I'm like last year I wasn't this tired or like I could take two weeks off and I was fine and or like even Ina said to me she's like you know if during November December if you feel like you just need a bit of extra rest then take it don't don't feel like you have to tick the box on training peaks and so again I know that but hearing someone else say that especially because Ina's been a racer herself you're like okay it's kind of giving giving permission and then you have to respect that as well but yeah there, there is there is a trade-off and I'm still finding it like I like to be active I don't yeah but I, I would say that it's it's not healthy to exercise for the sake of exercise all the time as a professional athlete. Yeah, no, for sure. With Ina, that lines up with... we. So from the Tour de France, when I was doing this podcast with um, my colleague Rachel, we went and interviewed her and we were kind of like, you know, Guy Raylene has been really good this year. Why isn't she here at the Tour? And she just went like, you want to kill her? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's... I really respect Trek's approach to young riders. Um, Gaia Raylini is insanely talented. She's also insanely young. And I think she is someone who'll ride her bike all year if you let her. And so Trek has had to, yeah, be that, be the professional team that's like, we're going to hold you back a bit because we see so much potential in you. And you just don't even know yet. I mean, it's, it's awesome that they're doing that because I think other teams would exploit their young riders and be like, go and win us all the things, go and train as much as you want, and then maybe question them or put the blame on them when they were suffering a few years later so and we've seen what guy is capable of and she's super professional and i really believe that when she does come to the tour she'll be even better than we saw her this year so yeah i really like that with track i mean you've also seen the progression of shirin van roy and eleanor backstead who came to the team when they were really young and they've both been really good um, teammates. They've both progressed a lot. Shirin's become a leader in her own right. And if they just, you know, let her go wild at the beginning, yeah, maybe we wouldn't see the kind of professional we're seeing in Shirin now. Yeah, it's, I guess it's, it's really good that there's teams that are doing that on the women's side, especially because obviously there isn't really that development structure there. So when you're signing like juniors straight into the world tour, pretty much, it's lucky or not lucky but it's it's good that the teams approach it that way because there isn't a, a step in between so I know obviously now on track there's now I think three other like eight five so you've got <clears throat> the twins and um okay um Fliss from Australia yeah um yeah it's interesting with with the young riders it it seems like this huge grab now to get successful juniors. I know that junior success doesn't necessarily lead to either long-term success or related success, but, I mean, I guess you've got to try. And so you'll see some riders who are terrible as juniors and they become awesome when they're older. Um, 
or some juniors that are really good and maybe their career will be awesome for three years and then they'll leave the sport. I actually just don't know how it's going to go because it's the same with the men's peloton. You're seeing these young riders, like, extremely good, so young. But um, I don't know if they want to stay in the sport. Maybe it's going to become more normal to have a second career after you're 25. Um, I think... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it how it progresses, but I do think it's very important to, you know, these people... Like, if I think about my way of thinking when I was 18 years old, it's so different to now. I mean, you like, yeah, everyone can ex- expect that. So I have a lot of respect for these um, people who are, like, professionals. Professionals and paid a lot of money and, and, you know, they have to manage their body and be responsible at that age I mean I I think it's so impressive um but yeah you do need adults around you I mean they are adults older adults around you to be like hey this is how it's gonna go so I think we've hired some really really good riders though some really um mature uh riders for their age um and also just really fun enjoyable nice people um yeah I'm really curious to see how it'll go I don't know like I I often think like Okay, some riders who are performing now, like Tade Pogacar, he wasn't awesome at his junior worlds, but, you know, then, yeah, you have riders who performed extremely well at junior worlds who are no longer in the peloton. Yeah, yeah, and then especially on the women's side as well, there's a lot of riders who maybe came to the sport a little bit later and and they keep going until they're, like, Annemiek van Vleuten, she's 41 and she's just retired. So there's kind of, like, both ends of the spectrum. And more so in the women's peloton, I think, than the men's. Yeah, it seems like in the men's peloton, older riders are like domestics. Um, I mean, they have to have, like, they can have a really consistent job all year and a really consistent level of fitness. And I think if, you know, and your experience and skills and your persona as a domestic is really important. So you see a lot of the older men riders, maybe they were winning when they were really young, then they've found their place as a domestic and that's a really respected position in the men's peloton. Hopefully it's becoming more like that in the women's peloton um, because I think in the women's peloton it's still just like what's your results and that's what your value is. Um, but if you can support, you know, winning riders throughout your career, I think... For me, I'm like, well, I see that as a way of having a sustainable career. I hope that young riders who maybe win a lot now don't... Maybe they won't be winning forever. Maybe they will. But I hope that that's, they can see that there's a role for them in the peloton besides just winning because it's a team sport. Otherwise, go do triathlon. No, it's interesting because, I mean, literally the last interview I did for this podcast was with um, Lizzie Stannard and she was sort of saying the same thing of like, because I was asking her kind of, you know, what are your personal goals? And really she kind of said, I just want to be a really good teammate. And that's actually, like, it's not very often you hear that from pro females, like, because like you say, I think it's still very like, what can I do for my own results to show somebody? But now it is becoming more professionalised the sport is becoming more structured around like the team element and so domestics are a really valuable part of a team now that is hopefully valued in every sense of the word as well yeah I think so and I think also like there is a reason that um, women riders just wanted to have good results is because that's what would progress you in the sport people would look at your pro cycling stats page and be like okay how many top 20s have you got? 
And you also couldn't see the work of domestics on TV. You'd only see either nothing and just a results page or you'd see the last 20Ks when it was kind of the final in a lot of ways. So that, you know, that really frustrates me a lot because I know I could have these really awesome race days but you, there'd be no evidence of it anywhere except for my own sense of achievement or my team teammates thanking me, for example. Um, but, you know, I think everybody would still love to win a race. Like, I would... L- I would love to win a race again. I know that I'm capable of winning races and I know that if at the right time, Trek will give me the opportunity as well. That's also the kind of team it is. It's not just like, you're a leader, therefore you're always a leader. Like, they're going to give riders opportunities who are in good shape or, you know, if you end up in a good breakaway, I hope that more breakaways happen in women's cycling, like organised ones, not just one rider off the front that eventually fades. Um, but that's also the, you know, it's this full circle thing with, like, the television rights. Like, I've, I've said this before, but, like, it's not been drilled into women's teams that it's an important thing to get in the breakaway to show your jersey on TV because there's been no TV. So it's still not a highly valued thing. Like, I don't think other writers or directors are like, right, get in the break. We want, we want you to be filmed for 45 minutes with the, with the brand on TV. It's just not, not even a thing. It's like a lot more people would rather stay in and see if they can finish in the top 20. And that just makes the racing negative and boring, um, in my opinion. So I think if we do see more people in breakaways, more domestics going for it, or even just like, yeah, domestics riding the front or doing their job really well on TV, then you're like, oh, wow, they're a super valuable rider. So at the end of the day, it comes down to visibility. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I, th- I think, yeah, like you say about the breakaways and stuff, like just kind of more of a a structure to the racing, I guess. Because like, I think it's a weird one because we're in this liminal space, I think, where a lot of people are like, oh, I really like women's racing because it's really aggressive and there's a lot, it's this action-packed, etc. But within that, like when you look at it from a tactical perspective, sometimes it's a little bit frustrating. 100%. Like I think that... I mean, our races are often, you know, three to three and a half hours long. So actually it doesn't leave heaps of time to let the breakaway go because there's, there's, that, there's always a chance that if you let the breakaway go, they could just win. And there's not that many race days to win. Say if we have a stage race that's three days long. I mean, there's not very many opportunities to win a stage, is there? <laughs> like if you have three weeks and you miss the breakaway one day, well, you have 20 more days to try and get in the breakaway, whereas we just don't have that. So everyone's a bit desperate, which makes it quite aggressive like you said um, but I do think that sometimes team managers are just like right you have to be in the breakaway so every rider is like oh I need to be in the breakaway and then they'll chase it down or try to get in it and not just accept that okay those four riders are in front maybe it's better to save our teammates and work to bring it back together or let, let one of the other major teams bring it back and then we can have more fresh people to help our leader in the final they just don't think like I've heard it from other um, riders say that oh our director just says, get in the break no matter what. I'm like, okay, well, that's not always the most the best situation. Who else is in the break? Whereabouts is the break going? Are you able to win from that breakaway? Who's your leader? Is it going to help you to have that person in the breakaway or is it going to ha- be helpful to have that person stay with your leader, depending on the final? So I just don't think they think about that much. And also I think people just respond based on jerseys. So if I, I mean, at Scandinavia, I was trying every day to like be in a breakaway. I think I was in one. Oh, yeah, we had one going for, like, a very minimal amount of time. But it was just, like, I know that people respond because they see a Trek jersey. And it's, like, if you thought about, okay, Brody's 
15 minutes down. She's not going to have any threat on GC. She, yeah, maybe could win the stage, but if she's attacking in the first 5Ks, probably she's not going to get to the finish line. So I just don't know why they don't think about that kind of thing. But it works for me because then I get the Trek jersey on TV and it'd be great if I had four other riders come with me. Um, But I think if people just respond without thinking. Yeah, it's like this anxiety of like we've got a limited amount of of kilometres or stages, which I wanted to ask you actually about, you put a tweet out the other day around this, like the length of, of women's stages and of stage races compared to men's. Like if you could just kind of expand on those ideas a little bit. Yeah, I was just having a bit of a (laughs) Twitter whinge because I feel like women's races are often shortened only relative to the men's, not not as a standalone, like, ability. Yes, I agree that we definitely don't have the depth, the organisation or the funding to have a three-week stage race. Like, that's not what I'm asking for. We frequently have four, five, six, eight, ten-day races but, like, I'm talking about the Tour Down Under, for example. Why is it that it's a world tour race and the men have five days and we have three? The women's world tour can race five days. The women's world tour can race 120 k's. Why do we have our longest stages 100 k's? And I, I recognise that it's in January. You do have, you know, a bit lower tier teams racing. But it just seems like, why, why not just make it the same? Like, it's, it's fine. And so... I, yeah, you know, I think calling a, a two-day race a tour is laughable. Or three-day race, like, it doesn't really... It's, it's race totally different to a one-week... I mean, men's races, one-week stage race versus a three-week stage race is race differently. And so I would just expect that, you know, give us a bit more time because everybody loves the Giro. You ask any girls that it's like, I love the Giro. You know, everybody races like it is a stage race you do see breakaways win we do have super long stages everyone knows what to do we can survive <laughs> if, if you're not fit enough to beat the Giro then you won't go so yeah <laughs> yeah it's kind of that like if you build it they'll come like mentality and I think the Tour de France firm has done really well at this in the last couple of years because obviously they haven't shied away from including big mountains like the Tourmaline next year there's going to be Alpes d'Huez and I think there still are people that are like, oh, can the women's peloton really race up that? Or won't it just be one person riding away? And it's kind of like, even if it is, at least then they have the experience of riding these big climbs or doing races where they're treated like actual professionals who can race like these big kind of flagship climbs or long distances. And then you train to that and then you're used to it and then the, the level grows. It's kind of don't why are we aiming low here mm. I, I totally agree like I think even in the men's peloton when it comes to the big crazy long climbs there's a very few select people that really perform on them unless it's the breakaway winning but like we don't even have enough days to say like it's a huge climbing day the breakaway can win if it's a huge climbing day the GC riders are winning so even then we still don't have those options for like climbers who are not full GC climbers to show their ability on breakaway days um, but yeah, I like what you were saying. I think it's, yeah, you got to put them in there because all, if you ask the Peloton, like the girls love it. Like it's awesome to race the Tourmalet. We know it's super iconic. It's fun to train for that kind of thing or, you know, whether you're trying to make time cut and get up it or whether you're trying to help your teammate or get ahead of the race. Like it's, it's super cool. But yeah, when, when people compare, I don't know, 
the dominance of a certain few riders in the women's peloton, I would argue to say that there's a dominance of a certain few riders in the men's peloton too. It just takes place over a longer period of time. And maybe there's, yeah, you can see more organisation over three weeks. <laughs> I mean, it'd be a lot harder to manage a position over three weeks than it is over eight days for sure. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's more variation because there's more opportunity for it for the men like there's long there's a longer race there's more stages so obviously you're going to have different winners whereas obviously the GC is tightly controlled in the women's race because it's shorter but even having like the Tourmalet you saw in the women's Tour de France fam of X Swift this year that um, yeah we did have riders win from breakaways like climbing riders get ahead because they know that the race is so prestigious they know it's going to be on TV they know it's going to mean a lot to their career and having a climb like the Tourmalet for GC teams like GC riders like Demi they're pretty comfortable or confident that they can control the GC in order to to win the race that day and let riders win stages because we did have long stages it is an eight-day race so you already see in a race like that I mean and the Giro even though you hardly get to see the Giro um, the same thing happens so yeah I think longer races and more visible races will mean more opportunities to breakaways to win like I personally think I could win from a a breakaway because I'm not going to be up there with the top GC riders but you know maybe if there's a certain type of rider that can take an opportunity and win from a break but yeah I just don't think I get that opportunity heaps (laughs) because you know you might try one day and that one day doesn't work so then it's like well it's over (laughs) for that tour (laughs) yeah I mean, on that subject, like, looking ahead to next year and obviously you've yet to race the tour. Is that something you'd like to do next year? Oh, man, I'd love to do the tour. Like, on when I was left out on FDJ, I was pretty disappointed because I think I'd proven that I can be a super good teammate um, and I will always, you know, prioritise the goal of winning the race, whether it's with me or with, well, mostly with the leader of the team. Um, this year, I think... I actually had a really good opportunity to go to the tour, but I was sick, uh, sick, so I didn't do the Giro. And so, yeah, my health and my level just wasn't there. And there was other riders on the team who had a way better level at that time. So I respect that decision. I didn't feel like it was personal. <laughs> um, I was disappointed, obviously, to what, you know, it's pretty hard. Like, I actually went off social media for the duration of the tour because I know that people were like, why aren't you doing the tour? And I just couldn't be bothered explaining. I didn't even put a post up being like, it's like, you know what, it's just... Just don't go on social media. It's a bit easier. Um, But, yeah, for sure I still watch the race because then some people are like, oh, are you still going to watch it? I'm like, yeah, I'm a huge sports fan. (laughs) Of course I'm going to watch it. I want to comment on everybody and talk about what I'd be doing or, like, question the the tactics from the couch. (laughs) I'm just like everyone else when it comes to that. Yeah, it's a huge goal for next year. And I think the way in, in order to get selected for Trek, I just need to be consistent in the lead up to the tour. Um... Yeah, and that's, you know, there's certain riders that are going to be guaranteed a spot, the same in the men's peloton, and then there's the rest of us who it's like, all right, well, you kind of need a vie for your spot and show where you're at. And at the end of the day, the team will select the best team for the race based on the stages, who the leader is, your form. Um, So I respect that they'll do that. But, yeah, for sure I want to go. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And outside of that, obviously it's an Olympic year as well. Is that something that's... On your radar, obviously, you said you're focusing on, on time trial a little bit next year. Is that with that in mind? or? Yeah, definitely. Um, for Tokyo, uh, initially, the focus was not on the time trial. Then kind of last minute, they took riders based on the time trial, which was quite um, 
disappointing for me because I hadn't worked on it at all really or had the opportunity to take my time trial bike to Australia. Um, so I was a bit salty about Tokyo. Also, the course was a bit better. But anyway, the Olympics is definitely something that would be life-changing, especially as a female athlete. I think it gives you so much kudos to be like, I'm an Olympian. Um, the course, yeah, I mean, I think I can excel in any course and I can especially support um, the team on any course as well. Australia, I believe, has three spots, so that's pretty tight. Um, we obviously have one of the best time trialists in the world <laughs> in Grace Brown, and so for sure she has a time, a time trial spot. I think she could you know, look for a medal, which is awesome, in both the road race and the time trial, actually. So, yeah, I'm going to do everything I can to meet the criteria, but if I go to the Olympics, it's a bonus. It's not like the be-all and end-all of my career. It's... It's a strange event in that, like, for road cycling, you don't have full teams. Like, imagine if you had, like, soccer or football with, like, okay, this team has four players and this team has nine. <laughs> like, it would just be weird. Um, and the Olympics is like that with the road race. So it's a bit strange. <laughs> that's, I've never thought about that before, but that's actually so true. Like, that's, yeah, it's really weird. Especially now as well, because it's good that they've equaled the number of... Um, men and women but it's also kind of made it even more of a juggling act between like how many people yeah. can go so it'll be weird for the men too it's yeah I just I don't know what the outside world it's obviously a huge prestigious thing to win the Olympics but you you have also seen like I believe that a lot of the men's peloton focus more on like the Tour de France or like the classics for example um, but yeah the end of the day the olympics is the olympics anything can happen there's no radios it's a life-changing event like even going to the commonwealth games or like worlds and being part of the australian team is um cool and exciting and fun so i'd, I'd love to go to the olympics but uh yeah i'll try <laughs> definitely a weird event as we saw from the last the last women's olympic road race <laughs> that's yeah, I understand how it's difficult without radios and even with radios sometimes. I'm like, wait, is there still a break up the road? What's going on? But, yeah, you need to communicate within your team to know what's happening. And it seems like some people knew what's happening and some people didn't. But at the end of the day, Anna Kiesenhofer won the race in a spectacular way. And I think it's a pretty cool story. <laughs> yeah, at the very least it was that. And, you know, you can't take anything away from her. So, but... It'd be quite nice if it was a bit more of a normal race next yeah. time. So, the thing is, a lot of people don't watch cycling until it's like the Olympics, for example. Um, and sometimes even those people will compare the Olympic road race to like the Tour de France, and they're almost two different sports in a way. Um, and that's where they'll see our sport. And so I do think it would be nice if it was more of a reflection of our actual sport, um, which is a team sport, not an individual event. So, you know, even people going to the Olympics as domestics, let's say, is that like a, other people might be like, what? You're not going to try and win the gold medal? <laughs> and you're like, well, like, yeah, maybe I can't. Yeah. I'd be believing yourself more. And you're like, well, yeah, it would be nice to win the gold medal. Like, but, yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, we'll see what happens there. But um, outside of that, obviously... Yeah, what, what else are you looking forward to next season? What are your kind of aims? 
My goals for next year is to have a full season. Um, I would like to perform well in the Tour of Flanders again um, because it's a race of kind of just like the strongest will survive. And, yeah, if you can be in good form for that race, I just enjoy it. It's just so exciting. It's like, I don't know, even when I go to Belgium now and I'm like, mm, smells like cow shit kind of makes me excited because it gives me that like nostalgic feeling of the classics. Belgian Christmas instead of like cinnamon is a cow shit. <laughs> Literally, I know it's weird, but I really like it. Um, I'd like to get selected for the Tour de France and I'd like to win a race. I don't know what race. I would like to win a race just because it's a good feeling to cross the line in front of everyone else. Um, and I'd like to be part of a team win. I'd like to see... We've had a lot of bad luck with Trek this year. I mean, it's not only down to bad luck, but we did start off the year short of riders and that became a massive problem when, yeah, COVID started rolling in. You have a couple of injuries. Um, so I just want to be part of a team win. I mean, we saw Elisa Balsamo after really, again, a bit of a rough year after a huge crash when she won a stage of the CIMAC tour. It was just a huge relief for the team and we all felt so much joy for her. And um, that feeling is what, you know, what everyone works for. Like the staff feel good, the riders feel good, the mechanics feel awesome, that the, you know, everyone works to try and win races. So if you're part of that, it's, it's awesome. So that's what I want to be part of. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think, yeah, like, obviously looking in as well, like, Trek is a team that over the last few years has really animated the races and kind of been, like, one of the really strong teams. And this year, just kind of, like you say, like, a bit of bad luck, riders kind of out of action. And I'm looking forward to next year seeing just also another, like, really strong challenger for SD Works because and not in an anti-SD Works way, but it's not good for the sport. It's not good for anyone when there's just one team kind of doing winning everything and not really being properly challenged so I've got high hopes for next season yeah I mean you saw that when Trek entered the women's peloton they came with a really strong team and were actually challenging SD Works a lot and it was awesome because it yeah it made everybody step up a bit more um yeah I think we we want the races to be exciting we want to take opportunities we want the races to be hard and it is I mean SD Works has has the best team as in like they are all super strong riders in their own right um and yeah it seems like their results speak for themselves you know and so there was a actually a point this year I think it was a CIMAC tour where there was a breakaway up the road SD Works wasn't in it neither was Trek it got a lot of time and actually it was quite interesting because you know SD Works was like asking other teams to work and it's like no don't do the work for them they have the best sprinter in the world on the team so don't do the work for them um and we actually said to so elisa balsamo had won the day before and we asked her you know are you happy to potentially let this a, a chance to win again go by letting the breakaway win um rather than having us chase and basically bringing SD Works to the line and she said yes she was like you know I'm willing to give up the opportunity to try and sprint in order to force SD Works to work which was a pretty mature and like a nice thing because she just won the day before she had the legs to win again um in the end it did come down to a sprint but it was um yeah interesting to just try and be like all right let's put them under pressure because the thing is like we've tried to put them under pressure before like at the Tour of Swiss and their riders are just strong enough that even that amount of pressure they don't they don't fade like other riders would because they are so good so 
maybe if you'd force somebody to chase or work on the front for a period of time, they'd get dropped. But a lot of the SD Works riders are so strong that they don't get dropped and they can still continue on. And again, I guess you see that with Jumbo Visma as well in the men's peloton, where you're just like, how? <laughs> how do we do this? <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I, I think that I was listening to a podcast that it talked about like, there's talent, then there's resources, talent, resources. And so initially you see the most talented riders winning all the time. And then you see the resources from all the other teams step up and then you start to see it level out a bit. And then once it levels out, then talent kind of starts to rise above and then talent wins again and then you see resources. So I think that's what's happening. The women's peloton is what, you know, suddenly there was all these teams that could meet the, the budget and the resourcing of SD Works and afford to pay and hire good riders and that leveled out a little bit. And then SD Works starts hiring the most talented riders, let's say, plus having a, you know, more luck than Trek this year. Um, but, yeah, I, I think you definitely can't take away the collective strength of their team at all. Like, there's a reason they win all the races. I do believe that there's other riders in the peloton who are just as strong and capable, just need to put it together and figure out how to win that was a bit of a random paragraph i just said but you get what i mean no yeah totally I th- yeah they just need to be put under a little bit more pressure by other teams i think yeah and i think people need to race to win as well not be like oh well we'll just try and chase back the break because we want to protect our top eight no like let sd works do it because they're the ones who are probably going to win and so sometimes you see teams taking responsibility and riding and like you know, giving SD Works a free ride because they're trying to, you know, get a top ten or something, which is fine. I know that you have to have a goal, and that's the difficult thing because part of the time you're like, right, we have to have a team plan. We need to ride to our strengths. We need to not worry about anyone else. But when you do that, SD Works can take advantage. But if you, you know, you do need to focus on your competition. Sometimes you're like, right, who's here? What are they doing? How will they race? And you need to adapt sometimes. So it is a bit of a balancing act because you do want to respect that teams have to race their own race um, and otherwise it can become really negative and passive which we also don't want because at the end of the day it's an entertainment for people to watch on tv so yeah it's about finding that balance I think it's it's difficult I don't know the answer <laughs> yeah it's kind of like the same question that just keeps going around in circles of mm. like how how to go about it how do you beat SD works or how do you like change that sort of dynamic but I think it'll get there and that's why I'm looking forward to seeing how the racing goes next year because I think each year the levels rising people are kind of learning more like the tactics are coming out more it's more organized so yeah I think it's going to be interesting yeah I mean and I have to say like there's a lot of like angry internet people out there who maybe see one one race and be like Anamika always wins or this person always wins or Demi always wins it's like the men's peloton has more races for starters but they when it comes to like their big races like you saw what happened this year with Jumbo Bizna I'm sure the exact same questions are floating around the men's peloton like how do we beat them what do we do do we have to step up our resources who do we hire you know and that's kind of what's exciting about sport though like how do we how do we win how do we beat them what do we do more and that's why it keeps progressing yeah it creates the narrative that everybody kind of tunes in for yeah for sure well, Brody, I could sit here all day picking your brain and <laughs> asking you loads of questions and hearing your answers because, yeah, you've got a lot of interesting stuff to say, but I'm conscious that we've taken over an hour of your time now. Um, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? What else are you going to do today? I'm actually going to go get a massage in Andorra because, yeah, I did this kind of adventure ride yesterday on a mountain bike and 
My body hurts. <laughs> yeah, just tell the lessons how long it was and how many hours you were on the bike for. Well, actually, I was on the bike for five hours and 56 minutes, um, which was a lot longer than I was meant to be riding. Don't worry, I don't do that all the time. But we went on this big lap um, and it was quite muddy and cold. So when you're riding in the mud, it's pretty slow. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it took a bit longer than expected, but I still enjoyed it. I got the day off today. Have a rest day tomorrow as well. Um, so just going to go do all the kind of did some life admin. Get a ma- I love getting massage. Honestly, it's one of my favorite parts about being a pro. Like, even though it's painful. I love it. Like even when I first went like on Tibco and the Swanee was like, right, Brody, come on, return for massage. I was like, what? A free massage? Are you serious? <laughs> this is awesome. I love it. It helps me so much. <laughs> well, I'll let you go off and get that sorted then. Um, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's been great having you on. No worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think I do like to spend my time talking, so it's not it's a enjoyable enjoyable spend of time. Yeah. Well, it's been enjoyable for me too, and I'm sure it is for listeners as well. So, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Brody Chapman. I certainly did. I think we could have sat in that cafe for another hour or more talking about all kinds of things. I think she always has lots of interesting things to say. She's a really cool person. We didn't even touch on like the many other facets of her racing life and and her personality, including the fact that she races um, as a vegan athlete. And yeah, there's so many things that I could talk to Brody about. But obviously we all have limited time. So maybe I'll have to do a part two at some point in the future. Anyway, if you've made it this far, then hopefully that means you like this podcast. And if that is the case and you have not yet left a rating and a review, then I would really appreciate it if you could take a few little moments out of your day to do it. It just helps us to spread the women's cycling love and help us share the content. And yeah, it just helps helps out the project which I would massively appreciate if you've already done that then you're the best thanks so much and don't forget to check out the show notes for details of the Women's Cycling Weekly newsletter if you are not already familiar with that it is a weekly as it says on the tin drop in your inbox of all this information that you could possibly want to know about women's cycling from the week so it's got all the news, all the results from races, all the upcoming races and how to watch them and a few bit fun bits as well, lots of articles. So yeah, if that sounds interesting to you, then head to the show notes or straight to Mammal Repeller, M-A-M-I-L, repeller.substack.com. So thanks again for listening and see you next time. Bye.